This podcast was originally recorded on October 22nd, 2019, as part of a live meetup with Juliet Oberding, the founder of Predictably Well and Dapity. Parts of this podcast may no longer be up to date. Indie Worldwide hosts multiple live meetups and live-streamed interviews with indie founders every month. You can find links to our next meetup at IndieWorldwide.co. We have with us Juliet Oberding, a serial founder. She's going to give us her story about founding uh, Deputy and, uh, don't want to mess up the other name, Predictably Well. Yes. Um, she's going to have about 15 minutes to just give us the rundown, and then we're going to do a back-and-forth Q&A. We might have other people hopping in and asking questions as well. This is the Indie Worldwide Meetup, and Juliet, with that, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you for introducing me. So I wanted to start at the beginning. So I am a lawyer uh, by, uh, by training, and so how, how did I get into tech? You know, well, my husband has always been a founder, and uh, he's had multiple startups, and I was mostly doing you know, the legal side of things, whether it was just helping out a little bit on the startup or doing some business development type thing, but he's had multiple startups, and I never really thought about myself being a, um, a founder. I worked with a lot of developers, software developers, um, worked with them on legal end, on contracts and all different types of uh, business legal issues. So had a lot of experience with technology and with tech people, but wasn't a tech person myself. Um, and then in 2008, I was diagnosed with a condition called rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease. And part of that disease, um, there's 50 million Americans that have autoimmune disease and they most of them have symptom flare-ups that seem to come out of the blue. And those flare-ups um, are basically so that you're doing really well, you feel good, and then out of the blue you have a, a flare-up that you just have no idea when it's going to come with, and it puts you down. So pain, exhaustion, you're in bed, hard to get things done. So one day on top of the world you're at work, the next day um, you're at home in bed dealing with your symptom flare-up. And so one of the things I noticed when after I was diagnosed and started having these flare-ups is that, um, that they, they seem to have a pattern with them, right? There seemed to be like something would trigger them and it, there seemed to be a pattern. And at that time, my husband was doing postgraduate studies at UCSD in machine learning. And so we talked about this a little bit, and he thought, you know, maybe we can use machine learning to figure out, to forecast those flare-ups. Maybe we can try that out and see, you know, see what, uh, what we can find out. And so we, we talked about it a lot, and then we uh, started developing that technology. And we started, we put together a team, a small team, just a side project, right? A small team to, you know, create an application to forecast symptom flare-ups, or just to forecast flare-ups. So originally we thought, you know, we're not going to get many people that have, you know, RA or any other autoimmune disease. We're going to have to look at things like allergies, because allergies also have the sort of out-of-the-blue kind of flare-ups, symptom flare-ups. And so we, we made a broad user base, right? And we uh, launched this in about 2012, and um, 
We got like 600 users within a month, which was pretty amazing. And we won this award at, from the city of San Diego, essentially like a grant to keep it going for a year for the citizens of San Diego. And um, so, and then about that point, we realized a lot of these people that signed up for this app are people with allergies and they check in and then you don't see them for a while until their next allergy comes in. And then we've had a couple of people, and one of the users is still a user today, but a couple of people who had long-term chronic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and they kept coming back every week, kept coming back whenever they needed to, coming back. But the, the allergy people, you didn't see them for, you know, months. You didn't see them for weeks, maybe, right? So <laughs> we started talking to users at this point. <laughs> maybe something we should have done initially. <laughs> so we started talking to users and doing user interviews, doing formal sort of lean startup user interviews. And we found that there was a real need um, with people who have chronic long-term disease to have this kind of technology to be able to forecast a symptom flare-up. And, uh, so, and, and the more we talked to people, we found that there was a specific group of people, people like me, who were impacted by certain, whether it's environmental elements or other things, that seemed to be uh, precipitating these flare-ups. Uh, so we realized that we needed to create um, something for those people, just those people, not people with allergies, not anybody who isn't feeling good, you know. Not, and we'd already launched two native apps. One was on um, Android and one was iOS. Um, and so, so we'd already done this work, right? But we realized we needed to take a step back and really look at people that had long-term chronic diseases and their needs, and particularly this, this subset of um, so around that time, we moved to, um, to San Francisco. We had a couple of grants and awards, things like that, given to us through different organizations. We moved to San Francisco. I had grown up here, and my parents lived here, and they, my dad um, was diagnosed with dementia, and so they, kind of, they needed some help. So it was a good idea to move from San Diego to San Francisco. Plus, we really wanted to be in the thick of things in San Francisco. We felt there might be more opportunities for us as a digital health startup here, as opposed to in San Diego, because there wasn't, in San Diego, when you look at health tech, it was mostly about um, really hard health tech. So um, creating um, uh, cures to diseases, uh, doing a lot of real clinical work, that kind of thing, full, really hard science, not digital health, which had just really been kind of getting going at that point. Um, so there are a lot of people making apps. There are a lot of people um, doing all different things in digital health. So we thought, okay, San Francisco, that's the place for us to be, right? Um, so we came here and then, um, and prior to that, it had been really a side project. I was still practicing law. Um, Tadia was doing other projects that, and it was just a side project for us. And so around 2016 is when we went um, full time. And that was, at that time, um, we got an incubation awarded to us by Pfizer. And so we were super 
excited about that. We had a full year at Galvanize, you know, office space for us, you know, so that it was great. Um, and we, we also really, really began to focus on user interviews and user interviews of only people with rheumatoid arthritis. And then we started talking to some of the um, advocacy organizations and particularly the lupus organization in Northern California. And we thought, okay, lupus, people with lupus have similar issues to people with uh, rheumatoid arthritis when it comes to symptom flare-ups. And we, so we were talking to people, you know, doing interviews and really just meeting with people, talking to people, learning more. Instead of just being my itch that I wanted to solve, it was also what, is, what are the specific issues that other people have? Um, I know what I have when I had a symptom club, but what about other people? So really getting to understand more users. And one thing that was a big deal for us is that we've been observing all these digital health apps, all sorts of apps being put out by pharma and insurance companies, and they just died. They, they would have some people for a while and they had no user retention. Um, they'd be able to acquire some people, maybe through doctors, but no user retention, so they just died. And that was what we really wanted to crack. We wanted to be able to have people come back every, every week to check in constantly and be able to prove that we could keep people on our platform. Um, so at this point, we created a web-based app. We didn't want to go native until we really knew that we had something. So we've had those apps previously that were for anybody. So this was just focused on people with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. And we developed the app. And then in, um, for the, in 2017, the winter of 2017, we interviewed with Y Combinator. And we didn't get funded. <laughs> Um, but that interview was really, really kind of a key turning point to the work that we were doing with Predictably Well. And it was, it was really important for us. Um, and so we focused, again, for two years, um, so the last two years right up to about the beginning of this year, we really focused on our beta cohort. And we, I talked with the people, and I still do every day, on um, uh, about their flare-ups, about um, how their symptoms are, about using the application. And so I, every week, I'm talking to um, those users, and we really think that we learned quite a bit about what people's needs are when it comes to rheumatoid arthritis and. Um, and lupus and how to help them be able to manage their life so they can live better. Um, and that was a big deal for us. Um, we were a B Corporation. Uh, we really, our focus and our mission was to help, help users, to help the patients, to help them live better. And we also didn't want to be one of these startups that went over to insurance companies or went to working for pharma or what have you. We really wanted to help people people that were having problems that weren't being solved um, by their medication that they were taking. Um, and so that, that was super, super, super important to us to be um, connected to um, the patients. The, so but the thing is, we didn't have funding and we didn't have real customers and we kept 
you know, pivoting on our business model. What's our business model going to be? And we kind of landed on um, being able to work with early stage startups that are biotech startups um, and working with them so, with a research type platform. So they would be interviewing the patients and understanding their um, symptoms and what drugs they're using and that type of thing. And, and so we kept trying to roll that out and really needing to, next thing we knew, we needed to understand the, uh, the customers. And we realized that we didn't really understand the customers that well and what their needs were. And so that, uh, that sort of brings us to kind of where we are today. And so that kind of, that, there was a big opportunity that we had for an NSFI, NSFI corpse and we didn't get that. And it kind of, that combined with my dad's dementia really um, kicking up and family responsibilities, I just realized that we have to be making money. We need to be making money and we need to make money in some way to fund predictably well or to fund another project. Um, and that's one of the things that really have resonated with me about indie hackers is that idea of really focus on getting customers, making money to keep the project going or to get it to the next level. Um, so we have been hearing about Blockstack for a while and we have been into blockchain and Bitcoin for a number of years. Um, and it was something we were really, really interested in um, for healthcare and for the idea of drug discovery. And so we uh, we won an award, which for a um, my so my co-founder is also my husband, and he had developed a um, a novel way of um, doing research for drug discovery um, using blockchain, and we won an award for that. So. That was great, um, but still, again, there's that issue. We don't know these customers that well, um, and we had been hearing about Blockstack, and we've been looking at blockchain for a while, obviously with that project. But we'd heard about Blockstack, and we want, and we were really excited about their focus on digital rights and their focus on privacy, and that's something that was really matters mattered to both of us, um, and. Uh, we, you know, we love the way that like EFF and um, Mozilla and Firefox were very focused on privacy and you know, companies like Pocket being acquired and um, that are, that there's a real focus on the user and, and this all resonated with us because we really felt that patient data belonged to patients. And it didn't belong to us, it belonged to them. And they should be, have the rights to do whatever they wanted with their data, whether they wanted to sell it, for example, to researchers, or let them use it and be paid for it, but that that data belonged to them. And so we're really, really very um, focused on that. So Blockstat seemed like a great opportunity for us. So we looked at the app mining, and they had a couple of hackathons. They had the Can't Be Evil number one hackathon, and then Can't Be Evil two. And we did Can't Be Evil uh, one, and we we created a social good app for MongoDB's hackathon that we won an award with for social good, which was called Person Eight, um, and that was really for homeless youth 
who, if you know about that community, they um, have quite often don't have their IDs. And we wanted to create a way for their IDs to be kept in a secure and private manner, but they would never lose their IDs because it would always be in a secure um, uh, database. So we created that for MongoDB, and then we did the Camp Evil 2, and we started integrating with Blockstack, and we really got excited by it, and the whole app mining process. And yeah, at first we were very interested in, oh, let's, let's get on top of the leaderboard for app mining and everything. But as we got closer and started working more with people in the community, it really became more of, this is a great community of people, and they're all people who care about privacy and digital rights. And when it goes right down, it's that core thing about the user, or the, whether it's a patient or an, an individual, and how they have the right to certain privacy and not be tracked. Um, we don't use Google Analytics. Almost nobody who is an app miner on Blackstack uses Google Analytics. It's something that all of us are looking at, whether we should use Fathom, whether we should use simple analytics, because we want to know our users too, right? Right. So, um, so we started out with um, working with Blockstack. We did a, a couple of launches on um, um, Product Hunt, which was an experience in itself that I could go on about forever. Uh, and I do recommend it, and I don't think that you have to be um, like fully developed app, but you have something that works that you want to test with people that you can use on ship. And I also like the community there, just like the community on Indie Hackers. I think they're a little different, so you can have, be a part of both of those communities. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I love that whole focus on makers, both at Indie Hackers and uh, uh, Product Hunt. Anyway, um, so we there was Product there was Can't Be Evil 2, the ha that hackathon was coming up. And I had this idea that I'd been talking about with Tadia, and I wanted to work on that. And years before, I'd been um, one of the leaders of the San Diego Python um, PyLadies group, which was the focus of PyLadies was to teach women or women who wanted to get into tech to learn to program Python. And so I always been dabbling in programming since I was about 18 years old. Um, but nothing, you know, never really went the distance with it, never really created anything but tiny little projects. And so um, I wanted to do Dapity. I wanted to design it myself, and I wanted to do the coding. And so with Tanya's help, that's my husband and co-founder, um, who is, I think, part, you know, the most brilliant person I know. Um, uh, with his libraries that he, he developed libraries for um, Blockstack, React-based libraries. And using that and my own coding background, I created Dapity. And Dapity is a launch pad. Um, and that's what we call it. It's a launch pad for the individual where you can uh, you can go there and you can see the apps that you've um, already previously used on Blockstack. So there's uh, a mechanism within the Gaia authentication of Blockstack where you can um, you can know on multiplayer 
uh, apps, uh, how many apps somebody else has used. So we can recall those apps, and people can come to Dapity and be able to see, oh yeah, hey, I used, um, uh, I used uh, Note Riot, and I really like that. And so, and then you're able to curate um, by favoriting, creating groups. You can share. We're getting to the next stage where you can share those those um, your groups with other people. And so, really, it's it's a DAP store that you can uh, curate, that you can create your own um, base of uh, apps for productivity. You can put those. Uh, you know, keep a place where you can always go and you can find the arcane docs uh, or you can find um, other applications that you can use every single day. So instead of like when I look at other app stores that are on looking at blockchain, there's a lot of gambling apps, there's a lot of gaming apps, that type of thing. Really on Blockstack, we have those, but we also have a lot of productivity apps, a lot of apps, a lot of apps that are for development, and I want to see people come in and see what, what Blockstat has, and I wanted this Dapity to be this portal for people to be able to come and keep coming back and making it part of their everyday life, because what it gets down to is that the user being able to uh, control their own data, um, not being tracked. Um, having a sense of privacy, really respecting their digital rights while creating something useful and beautiful and elegant for them. And so Daphne won uh, the grand prize for best female coded app and I was really, really proud of that. Um, and so, but we're focused on moving forward with Daphne. And uh, right now, we're looking at trying to make sure that we're in the, the top uh, group of apps on um, the app.co, so for app mining, and having the, and by focusing on how many users we have and increasing users. So it's, we're looking at like 20 users a day, increasing that, keep increasing that up so that we can be amongst the top apps. Um, so that kind of brings us to right where we are right now. Um, and I guess that's, um, that's kind of what my intro to me. <laughs> yes. So for uh, Wilson and Josh, who just joined us, we're with uh, Juliet Oberding, who has two companies. One is Predictably Well, which helps manage uh, chronic diseases. And the other is a blockchain-powered app called Dappity, which is a uh, platform to launch dapps. So I guess my first question is, where is the balance of your time going nowadays? Is it mostly on Dapity? Is it mostly on Predictably Well? It's, most, it's mostly, on, it's been mostly for the last summer on Dapity and Blockstack apps and all the apps that we're um, creating. Um, so, but for me, pretty much it's on Dapity and focusing on that. Um, but as we move into the fall here, I'm going to be splitting my time between Dapity and um, Predictably Well, because I'm going to start doing a little more work on Predictably Well to grow our users and to see where the next step is for Predictably Well. So um, we have, uh, we received a grant through a, uh, a company called All Good Works 
and um, I have check-ins with them to they monitor what we're doing on predictably well and I want to go to the next step and one of those steps is hiring someone to help with predictably well and so we're moving forward to try and grow that and then also Dapity too. How does predict how does the current incarnation of predictably well work? Okay, so we have so we're going to be so this is where the block stack thing comes in. We're going to be developing something on block stack for the patients. Um, and that so that's like the roadmap going down the roadmap um, of what's next for predictably well. Um, but how it works currently is it's primarily concierge based. So there is an application. Um, I work with the users on Facebook through Facebook Messenger. They receive, they give uh, their, um, they respond to specific survey questions, and then I provide the forecast to them. So it's a, they get a forecast and it's weekly. They come in weekly, sometimes more, um, sometimes a little less, but pretty much every single week the folks that we have in that beta cohort that I told you about, um, they come in regularly. So if I have like arthritis or Crohn's or something like this, you'll yeah. give me an idea of what my week is going to look like? Exactly. So it's a way for you to manage your symptom flare-ups. It's not based on, uh, there's no um, clinical data and clinical data being things like blood work, um, anything like that. It's primarily based on the survey questions and some other external data that we use to create the forecast. It's based on the machine learning model um, and we've been obviously testing it for a long time and it really works for the patients to help them manage their day-to-day -day, uh, wellness. So that's how what it are the works. data points that feed into that model to make it reliable? Um, so we use specific, um, we have, have specific questions that we ask them every day, every time they check in, which is both related to the same type of questions that the nurse would ask a person when they're coming in. So if you keep in mind that when you go to the doctors, um, you're only there maybe once a year. And even with people with rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, they're there maybe twice a year, okay, unless things are really out of whack with their medication and they're really having problems. They're not going to the doctors all the time. So the doctor only gets to see and hear from them um, maybe two times, three times maximum a year, right? And so in between those times, we have all the data for them as far as their pain, um, their energy levels, um, some other uh, specific issues that we look into um, some environmental data that really impacts both people with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Um, and so we bring all that data together along with looking at the whole cohort. Um, and then are the folks that we have are not just in San Francisco or California, they're all over the United States. So we have people that are in Florida, people that are in Minnesota, lots of people along the Eastern Seaboard. And as you can imagine, when you live in different microclimates like that, it can have an impact on your health, which as we go forward with climate, with climate change and in the um, 
you know, the issues that we're facing right now, we're going to see climate impacting people in all different kinds of diseases in ways that we have not, ways that we don't expect and we haven't seen before. Um, and so those are the different types of things that goes into the forecast. Um, we have our own model um, and then based on all of that data, all their pre-existing data and their ongoing data, we create the for we create a forecast. And it's a simple it's a simple forecast that helps them get through the week so they know what's the likelihood that I'm going to have, what's the risk of a flare-up for me this week. And it really works, it helps them manage there. And we, so we do get the feedback of this was totally on point for my week. This was exactly how things panned out. And we get some feedback that it did, this, didn't, this didn't pan out. So we keep listening. Um, and there are more things that we want to enter into for the data. For example, we do want to include clinical data like um, blood work data. And we want to include um, uh, microbiome data as well. So those are all different things we want to bring into, um, into the forecast. But that that'll take time, <laughs> a lot right. of work, and money. Especially collecting microbiome data per patient, that's, you need a bit of infrastructure for that. Yeah, or you, well, you can work with their other organizations that will take the microbiome and they will analyze it and provide you with lab data. But there's other with their other providers now. Like, do you no. talk to the no. doctor? No, we don't work with the doctors at all. But that would be something down the line. Right now it's just directly for the patient based on their experience. Um, they are followed, all of them are followed by doctors. And we don't give them any kind of medical advice. We're giving them advice of you may see a flare-up, you should consider taking these lifestyle actions in order to improve your um, your week. So if you're looking at a flare-up, you may want to cut back on activities. You may want to get more sleep. You may want to consider what you're eating, um, uh, how much exercise you're doing. A lot of different things like that can go into helping you to have a better week, even if it looks like there's a flare-up coming. And you can, can improve your status, even if you're in the middle of a flare-up. Um, by taking lots of different lifestyle changes. For um, the other people on the call, if you want to jump in with questions, feel free. Or if you don't feel like talking, you can also just listen or put uh, questions in the chat, and I can ask them. Um, so is the, the, the person8 org that I saw on your Twitter bio, is that the one that was keeping track of identities for? Exactly. Or like homeless youth? Yeah, that was the very, it's very, so we thought that when we launched it at Product Hunt, we thought that we could have um, one side for homeless youth and or refugees and people that are in the middle of disasters um, where they've lost their identity documents. And then on the other side, for example, um, the paying customer would be uh, people that are uh, digital nomads, so people that are traveling around the world, they're in tech, they're in marketing, et cetera, and 
if you look at many of those people, they have like multiple, um, on their passports, they have multiple visas that they have to pay for that are really expensive. And I, you might know something about this as well. Um, but they, and so there, there's a potential for being able to, for them to have everything in one place in case they lose their passport. So that's the, and so the idea then being able to have a paying version that will allow us to have the, the social good version that goes to homeless or um, homeless youth or refugees or um, anyone that's in a disaster situation where they've lost their identity or could lose their identity. And um, so that's, that's what that's about. And I'm, I'm still really excited about that because I feel that in San Francisco, there's a big need um, to, and this is a place to start with that and being able to talk to the city of San, Diego, San Francisco um, and seeing what we can do about working with health and human services. So really, I have three projects going on. Um, and we'll see what we'll we'll see how things go. <laughs> yeah. So this is predictably um, getting much time right now. Is it mostly? I guess it's mostly on Dapity at the moment, right? It's been for the summer. It's been mostly on Dapity and working on some of the other projects that I work with Tadia on. Um, he has a number that he's doing, but it's primarily on Dapity, and um, and then we'll be doing more work on predictably well. What was the, so how do you go from health, like digital health tech to black stack? So originally we started um, looking at, first it was Bitcoin, um, and we started looking at that and then looking at blockchain. Um, and there were a lot of, I was a um, Stanford fellow for medics, and one of the medics, they had a full conference about blockchain and using blockchain in healthcare and how that could be how that can be used and incorporated in healthcare. So that's always been something that's been um, on our mind. And so for, for Tadia and I, we regularly test um, our ideas, whether we test them at hackathons or other events, but we will create something and see how does this work? How do people react? Is there an interest in this? And how is it for us to create it? Like, what problems did we come across? So we like to test out different ideas. Um, and so we've test out a number for blockchain, but Blockstack had far more, um, a real, they have a real setup for people coming in to create on Blockstack. They have, um, a, a real introduction and it's many of the other companies that we looked at were very very new and they didn't have such the wide information for someone who wants to come in and start building on Blockstack um, and so I think that that plus the focus the whole can't be evil thing and prior to that we had heard about them in 2018 and the focus on digital rights and privacy um, was really important to us. And I hadn't seen, while I know that many companies that do blockchain are very concerned about right, digital rights and privacy, I hadn't seen as much real focus on that as I did from Blockstack, which made it for us a no-brainer of a company that we'd like to build on top of. So that's, that's how we get to Blockstack. 
What's the motivation for moving predictably well onto Blockstack as well, which you mentioned plans for like the next couple of months? Um, so that's like down on our, it's on our roadmap to work on that, um, which is the motivation is again, looking at the user, what's the user's needs, caring about them and their um, privacy, um, making sure that they have an environment that they will be able to look at their data that's been collected and be able to interact with it, be able to use it for whatever their needs are, and then know that it's in a safe and secure environment. Um, and, and that's really the motivation because we've always felt the patient should be in control of their data. If you look at everything in healthcare, um, data is siloed for the most part. It's siloed in your hospital, it's siloed in the people that do your lab tests, it's siloed um, in insurance companies. And the user, the, the individual, the patient, they're not really a consideration. Um, yeah, we have great, we have legislation like HIPAA, but HIPAA has also been used in order to firm up those silos in a way. Um, it's been used as a rallying cry to protect the patients, but it's not so much protecting the patients as allowing um, the incumbents to maintain the data hordes that they have. And there are organizations that have been, from a perspective of a patient, sound really good. We're going to find cures for these different diseases, just come and give us your data, and we're a nonprofit, and, and all of that sounds great, but then the data doesn't go anywhere but stays in that silo. And then what's the purpose of that? And how is that really helping the patient? And patients need to be able to say, hey, I don't want you to have my data anymore. I would like my data um, withdrawn from this, or I would like to have all my data. And there's different movements about, like you can see what happens with you know, the GDPR and how it's important to really consider users on your websites or on your apps that, and their data. Um, so there's more of a movement towards privacy, even though it seems like we've lost all control of our privacy in the world that we live in. How does HIPAA compliance work for a blockchain-based app? So the real issue with HIPAA is that HIPAA applies to a situation where you have a healthcare provider um, in the loop. So if I am working with um, UCSF um, and we're working, say we're working with a clinic that focuses on um, patients, uh, lupus patients, right? Um, then we are working with them, then we are a third party, and we would have to have an agreement with them that, and show that we are HIPAA compliant, and we do everything that requires that privacy is maintained for the, um, the patients. So we've always believed in privacy, so we've always had privacy for our patients, but um, it would be definitely more formalized as far as... Um, HIPAA, and there are certain rules and requirements for the third-party business associate, which is what you become when you're working with the healthcare provider. And the, so the big thing to loop back around to this is if you don't have a healthcare provider in the loop, then HIPAA doesn't apply. There are other statutes that may 
apply. And particularly, we have the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is coming up in the beginning of 2020. Um, and still, they, they're not completely sure what they're doing with that. Like a GDPR? It, like it's kind of, kind of like that. Um, it's really going to impact um, developers and companies that have over 50,000 users. Um, it's, so it, it's something to really think about if you're in California or you have users in California. Um, so, yeah, so there are other things that you need to comply with, whether you're in California, New York has a profile privacy act, or other states that are now enacting privacy um, acts. So there are different things that you still need to comply with, but it's the HIPAA does not fall within the purview of an application that's not um, talking to healthcare providers. We've got a question in the chat from Wilson. He says, Hi, Juliet. This is Wilson from, Wilson from Block Survey, a Blockstack app, and he wants to know if you have any plans to assist Blockstack apps to gain traction among the privacy community through Zappity. I think that that's one of our, uh, yeah. So the short answer is yes, Wilson. And I'm actually looking at creating, again, different um, file folders, let's call it that, uh, but different curated groups of apps that, that are meet certain privacy guidelines so that we can let people know, uh, look at these amazing apps on Blockstack. These are privacy loving, respecting, digital rights respecting um, apps, and we want to get the word out there. Um, so we're interested in starting to interview um, Blockstack developers. We may be starting that this week um, to talk about their apps, um, uh, their uh, initiatives for privacy within their apps, uh, how they are motivated to move forward, uh, and just really getting the word out about um, the Blockstack community and the fantastic people that are there. <laughs> it's really a great group. I have to, I, I have to say that this, I haven't seen so many people who really work well together. Not everybody agrees with each other. We all have different perspectives, but it's a fantastic group and, and community. Thank you, Juliet. Go ahead, Wilson. Wilson. No, thank you, Juliet. Uh, I think looking forward to it. I think, uh, so I just wanted to uh, check with you about things because I live in Asia uh, where uh, the privacy awareness isn't uh, that great compared mm -hmm. uh, to the place uh, you see in either in Europe or, or the Western world. Uh, I think it's it's very difficult uh, uh, for a privacy focused or a privacy engineering focused tech product to be sold here. And even for our product, we are looking at markets in Europe and uh, US and the Western countries primarily. I think so. What we wanted to also know is what we wanted to hear from your perspective in terms of uh, how do you go about uh, doing B two B or uh, of marketing and sales on, in this side for very privacy-centric uh, communities. Uh, things, is, is there a lot of digital or privacy advocacy which needs to be done by individuals or is it, or is, is, is it something that uh, we'll be waiting for that time for people to adapt to it? And... I, I think that we actually need to open the doors a little bit to let people, to bring people in and to attract people. Um, marketing is difficult 
Um, I under, and I understand that part. I think you and I both know that there's a difficulty in order to bring people over to um, Blockstack, to bring them in. And, um, and I think that's really what Dapity is looking to do, is to help shine the light on all the other apps that are in the community and bring more people that are interested in using those apps on a regular daily basis for their work life, for their you know, personal life, um, as a, whether it's productivity or whether it's creating um, artwork or photography or journaling or writing medium-style blogs, is to shine the light on everyone so that we can start bringing more people in to try the applications. Um, and then I think something that all of us have been talking about is the analytics portion. We all want to know, um, we all want to have uh, uh, connections with our users because uh, you, for me, and I'm sure you, that user testing or really understanding users is key. And I think we've been very lucky with being able to use Try My UI and have those, uh, listen to those user reviews, whether <laughs> they're positive or negative. <laughs> but we, I've really learned a lot for Dapity and been able to iterate. Each time we listen to those user interviews, um, the reviews, right, and, and are able to, and so I think that's really important um, and so then we get back to what's the analytics that we're going to use and how can we use a privacy-based or privacy-respecting analytics. Um, I'm definitely not going to use Google Analytics um, ever. And I'm trying myself, have been really moving out of applications that are tracking me or be able to, to put the brakes on it with different applications that I use from Firefox. Um, but there is Fathom and there is simple analytics and I think that um, a number of the members of the community are testing them so we'll see how those work for all of us and how much information we're able to or interaction we're able to have with the users to create something that's really good for them. Did that answer your question, Wilson? Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I think so. It's a, it's a collective thing. I think, as you said, uh, uh, yeah, I think a little bit of light on uh, the privacy apps out there. Uh, I think I, I like uh, Dapity, uh, what you have done. I think it gives me, uh, sometimes I lose track of all the privacy apps I try and play around with. I think it always helps me to uh, see, go back and see how the apps are evolving uh, time to time. Uh, so that's a place to go. And uh, I also look at, I also use uh, privacyalternatives.net. Uh, That's a website to see, discover new privacy apps. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that's quite interesting to see how this privacy community, community is evolving. Uh, yeah, I think we all share the same journey. So let's see how it goes. Definitely, definitely. Um, you'd mentioned you've used Product Hunt for apps that aren't like super polished yet. I was wondering mm -hmm. how. All right, so there, there's two ways to do it. So first you can start out with Ship, um, which is one of their paid for products where um, you create a community on um, Product Hunt. You attract people to what you're uh, working on and you give them updates and feedback, just like if you're going to create a mailing list on, your, on a website. 
Um, and so you interact with them and you try to grow that community in hopes that when you launch, you'll have people who are already uh, raving fans and interested in what you're doing and interested in helping you move forward. Um, so we did a little work with SHIP um, on a couple of the products. And, uh, and, and I think that helped. Uh, it helped us to be able to understand what people thought, um, to gather more users. But we really did this a lot faster than we might normally do it as far as, you know, the, we didn't have any focused user interviews other than what we get provided through app mining through Try My UI, which is uh, user reviews. And those, I have to say, were really, really good. And I, I don't mean good because they said, oh, how Daphne is marvelous and fantastic, but that they, we could see the repeated statements of things that they found were a problem and things that they missed and what things they really liked. And then we could see as we iterated and kept changes, because we work on this every single week, so we're constantly updating, then we can see how the, the change in the reviews and what now they were focused on, or what was good and what they didn't like. Um, so then getting back to Product Hunt launch. Um, so we launched both Dapity and Personate fairly early so that they were working applications. Um, you could use them, but they didn't have the bells and whistles that they would have, that they have now. They didn't have uh, the, the setup for, you know, while you could favorite things, you couldn't really set up into groups and you couldn't curate it. You couldn't, and we have all the applications that are on um, app.co within Appity, so you can go into, um, utilities and see what's there. You can go into productivity, you can go into art, you can go into music, you can see what's in each area and be able to check it out. Um, one thing we still don't have is a search bar and that's something that has been asked for um, repeatedly, so we'll have to put that in. That's something that we're definitely um, working on getting into the next version. Um, so the point being, going back to Product Hunt, is that we had an application at work that you could test out that you could you would be able to see the key value proposition was it recalled your apps and they were there. So you knew that, oh look, I tried these 10 apps and I, you know, so it's like with a, it doesn't load, you know, on your phone you have your apps loaded there. When you have web-based apps, you know, you can, remember them, you can save them in your um, browser or, you know, different things like that. But with, with Blogstack, you're able to, there's a technology you're able to use to recall those apps. Um, and so that when you, I walk, when I get into Adapity, I can see, oh, here are all the apps I used and I really like these three, so now I'm going to favorite them. And then I want to try these new ones and then I want to put them into a folder for whatever that folder is, again, like productivity or development, because we're having more um, development-related products that are coming out now. Um, so, yeah. we got about five minutes left, so if anybody else has a question, this is probably the time for last questions. Um, and if not, was there anything else you wanted to tell us before? I think that just... 
going back to product hunts, um, that even if you have a basic application, you can launch it and you learn a lot from that launch. Um, and, and I really encourage people to do those launches, those early stage launches, because you can come back and launch again when you've done a major iteration. Um, I think there's a lot to be learned from that. Uh, and so that's why I'm kind of positive. I'm really positive about that experience. I think that there are more people, more women, should be coming into Blockstack. Um, there's a few of us that develop on Blockstack, and I'd like to see more women. I'm really positive about women in tech and um, women founders. Um, I think we all have the same shared experience. It doesn't matter what our gender is. We all have similar experiences, and you can see that on Indie Hackers when you see I can see people I relate to and the experiences they have, and it's, it's like, I, that's happened to me, and this person found a solution, and that's super cool. So I think that's the another thing I want to encourage people to be part of the maker organizations that are out there, to really get involved, and um, you don't have to struggle and be in some kind of isolation where you think that you're the only one that's experienced that, and I think that leads to mental health issues when we're not together and relating with each other in groups and finding out that, hey, other people are experiencing the same things that I am. So I think that's a really important thing to end on, that community is a big thing and it's really important for all of us. Excellent. Where should people find you if they want to follow your story, <laughs> learn more, reach out? I think that uh, if you really want to understand who I am on Twitter, I'm pretty pretty free with my retweets and um, there are a lot of different things that uh, if you want to follow me there, that's a great place. You can also find me on um, Facebook. I'm mostly focused on you know, friends and family and then my uh, female founder groups there. Uh, but I think Twitter is the best place to hang out. <laughs> Juliet Oberding on Twitter. Yes. Thank you so much for the time. This hour flew by. Yeah, um, yeah, I'll let you know when the recording's up, and uh, we should do this again sometime. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciated this. It was fun. Thank you. Likewise. Mm -hmm. Goodbye, world. Bye, Wilson.